Well, good morning, Discover Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Man, oh man, it's good to see you. There's some energy in church this morning, and I love it, I love it, I love it. Man, it's so good to be with you. Last time, last week was my first week back after three weeks off of preaching, man. Can I just tell you how much I love you, church? Man, I love you. Not just, not just that I got to preach to you, um, but man, it was just such a joy to be able to worship with you and um, to see so many faces and see so many people serving. Uh, last week was a little crazy. Uh, Chris alluded to it. We had a lot of people here last week. There's a lot of people back this week for the second time. So welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, it was a little crazy back in Discover Kids, but man, we got an awesome team of people uh, that are ministering to our kiddos. I want to take a second and um, scripture says that we should give honor to whom honor is due. And we give a, she doesn't know I'm going to do this and she's going to get mad. If she's in the room, she's probably serving back and discover kids. If she's in the room, she's going to be mad at me for doing this. Um, but I just want to take a second and just honor Lisa Hurley. Uh, Lisa Hurley last week, you can, yeah, if you know her, you can give it, give it up for her. Uh, her and her husband, Jeff, serve in several capacities. They serve on teardown. And I was talking to them, uh, to her last week uh, during teardown. And uh, actually, I heard her talking to somebody else, and she said, man, it was crazy. We had so many kids. We had 11 babies in the nursery last week. A lot of babies in the nursery is a sign of a healthy church. It's a sign of some healthy marriages. Um, you know what I mean? And, uh, and so anyway, she said, you know, I was excited to be back. She was, I, I overheard this. I was excited to be back. The new journal was going to be back, um, and I was excited to hear my pastor preach. But I saw all these people coming in. I thought, man, they're going to have some issues. So I said, y'all let me know if, uh, if y'all need some help. Anyway, right, after, right as the service was starting, she looked around and Emily came in and she made eye contact with Emily. Emily didn't even have to ask. Lisa just grabbed her stuff and walked back there. Wasn't even scheduled to volunteer and served back in the nursery. And Lisa, I love you. I'm so thankful for you. I appreciate you. I mean, I'm so thankful for all of you that are serving on the Dream Team. Listen, I get, I, I hear all the time um, the things that people enjoy and love about our church. And uh, here's the deal, y'all. I just, I get way too much credit for this. I have a small, I have a very small role that I play here. Y'all are the ones that make it happen. If you serve on the Dream Team, man, you guys are making a difference. And our vision as a church is to see our city changed one life at a time. And last week we saw three lives changed as they made decisions for Christ. You're making a difference, church. You really are. You're making a difference. And um, man, you humble me. I'm so, so honored to be your pastor. And we're going to continue in our summer study series called The Kingdom Manifesto. It's a study through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And here's the deal. In this series, we're learning about the kingdom. We're learning what the kingdom is and, and how it operates and how God's people should live in his kingdom. And we're studying this because there is an epic clash between the kingdom of light and between the kingdom of darkness. And whether you know it or not, whether you want to be involved or not, you are right in the middle of it. And so we are studying Jesus's manifesto to understand from the king how it all works. The title of the message today is What Impresses God? What impresses God? Perhaps you've thought about this. Um, if you've spent time in church, uh, perhaps you've thought about it. Maybe if church is not a part of your normal rhythm, let me first off by saying I'm glad that you're here. Um, we, 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 we believe that you can belong here before you believe like the rest of us. Um, and so we're glad that you've walked in the door and that you've come here and that you're welcome here. Hope that you find yourself comfortable here. 
Um, so if you've not grown up around church, perhaps you've thought about God or, or, or you've thought about the concept of God. And if God is real, if he really does exist, then part of the job description of being God is that you have powers that extend beyond the ability of us as humans. And so it might be good to know, is there a way that I can impress God in such a way that can move the needle to cause that God, if he exists, to, to maybe jump on my team and put on my jersey? This question is a question that we ask a lot today. It's a question that a lot of Jews in Jesus' day asked. And so in his manifesto so far, Jesus has been kind of exclusively addressing um, and, and pinpointing issues as it relates to belief. And he is bringing, he's brought a lot of clarity and, and, uh, and, and truth to the way that people believed in his day and some of the, the way that things were misconceived and misconstrued. And what he's been teaching us so far, kind of subversively under the surface, is that his kingdom is inside out. That while the rest of the world and, and the religious leaders of their day were focused on all of the external things, hoping that it would change what was going on on the inside, Jesus has been teaching us that in his kingdom, it's the exact opposite. That everything that we are and who we are and the byproduct of the things that we do all ultimately start from the inside, from the heart. And so Jesus says, listen, I want to speak to the heart of the issues because if you'll let me have your heart, I'll transform your life. And what we're going to learn today is Jesus is going to pivot a little bit away from belief, but into practices. He's going to begin to teach us that not only is his kingdom inside out, but it's also upside down, meaning it's, it's, it's the exact opposite of what conventional wisdom says. It, it, it's contrary to the way that the world works. And then the way that the world promotes things and the way the world acknowledges things and the way the world blesses things is the exact opposite of the way that God does things. And he's going to begin to illustrate that today as we begin to dive into three specific practices that any good Jew would have participated in with consistency and that, that God actually expects us, even if we're not Jews, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, he expects to be a part of our relationship as a part of our pursuit of him. And so remember, we started with belief. That's where we've gotten to so far. So Jesus has addressed the heart. And as we talk about practices, it's, it's, it's important that we don't get it twisted. We start thinking that the external changes the internal, but with the understanding that it's the internal that drives the external actions of righteousness, Jesus is now gonna start talking about some of the practical things that they do. We're gonna start in Matthew chapter six today. If you have your Bibles, man, open them up, turn them on, get ready. If you don't, we're gonna have them on the screen. I got your back. Well, I don't got your back, but they got your back back in the tech booth and they're gonna make sure that you're good to go. All right, if you're with me, let me hear you say amen. Matthew chapter six, verse one says this. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father in heaven. This verse is the thesis of the second act of Jesus's kingdom manifesto. In this verse, he is establishing the framework, the point, the big idea 
And then he's going to illustrate it. Now, in order for us to kind of understand a little bit more what Jesus was talking about, um, we got to dive into uh, something that can, uh, particularly if you're new with church, if you're new to faith, this is one of those things that can become really complicated. And I, I feel like I need to address it, but I don't, I don't want you to get twisted up with it. Um, you may know that there's a whole lot of translations of the Bible and, and kind of internal debate amongst some Christians is uh, fights over which translation is the very best translation. All right. I typically read when I study the Bible, I study the Bible from the New King James. All right. Mostly because that's what that's what I was raised with. I was raised with a New King James. It's comfortable for me. It's familiar to me. But I want you to understand there's a difference between studying the Bible and reading the Bible. If I'm just reading the Bible, I oftentimes won't read the New King James. I'll read a number of different translations, such as the Message, the Good News Translation, because for me, one of the things that I have a tendency to do as, a, as someone who enjoys to study the Bible is, is sometimes I'll get so knee deep in the weeds of things, I'll kind of miss the big idea. Does that make sense? Right, you get caught around, you're watching a movie and you get caught around like a subplot issue that you miss the point of the story. And so sometimes when I'm reading, I'll read one of those other translations because it helps me kind of stay above some of the, 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 the nitty gritty and get the big idea. But if I'm gonna study God's word, if I'm gonna begin to unpack it and dive deep, then I wanna read a, a word for word translation. There's several good ones. There's the New King James, the English Standard Version, um, the North American or the New American Standard Bible. Um, if you can get past all the these and the thous and the whither, tither, thou, yons, the King James, all right, um, but there's several good translations. And, but here's the deal. The, the original language that the Bible was recorded in is not English. And so every English, that, every English Bible you read from is translating as best they can from the original language. And so sometimes some translations get certain words right and sometimes other translations get other words right. So I don't wanna trip you up on this. I just kinda wanna give you a little bit of a, I like to provide some deeper nuggets and some maybe insight of kinda how I operate when I'm studying the Bible and we're in these deeper verse by verse studies. And so, so that's something, but I wanna, I wanna share with you because the English standard version actually translates this verse um, better because we can kinda miss the exclamation point that Jesus is getting across and we can get Get confused as to what Jesus is intending. All right, the new, the new King James says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds, right? And so, so we can go, okay, well, that means, you know, notice this every time that you do charitable things. But the, the ESV translates Jesus's point much better, and it says this, beware, look out, caution, be on guard, be careful of practicing not your charitable deeds, but your righteousness. What he's getting across here is the idea that when you begin to allow, when, I, when Jesus begins to change your life and you begin to, to follow him and you begin to do things that become more righteous, more in alignment, more in pursuit with what Jesus wants for you, that when you practice your righteousness, when you, when you take your belief and you put it into practice, beware, look out, caution. Here's why. Because don't practice your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father 
who is in heaven. What Jesus is trying to get to is he's trying to establish the big idea that if all you're concerned about is getting credit, getting kudos, getting accolades from somebody else, from your righteous acts, the things that you do that are supposed to be in alignment with Jesus, going to church, reading your Bible, serving people, all of these other things, if the motivation for you doing those things is to earn something or to get something, you're missing the point. You've missed the boat. Notice what he says. He says, for, uh, in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. What Jesus is getting at the heart of is the motivation behind the Jesus things that we do. How many of you know, and you don't have to admit to this, but sometimes it can be easy to convince people that you're much more spiritual than you actually are. I have a Jesus fish on the back of my car. And I told someone that they were number one when I cut them off or cutting me off. Which one reveals your true righteousness? We're going to be real in the house of God. Is that okay? So notice what he's going to do. He's going to jump in now with his first issue. Verse two, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, now charitable deed uh, is any act of mercy, meaning it's anything that you do where you recognize a need and you insert yourself to try to be part of the solution for the purpose of helping or blessing someone else, okay? It's when you jump in and go, man, I can help you. Let me help you. Let me serve you, okay? That's a charitable deed. It's very broad, very all-encompassing. So Jesus says, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you that they have their reward. Now, now what he's talking about, he's going to talk about hypocrites in each of these three instances. Now, when Jesus spoke this word hypocrite to the original audience, they would have immediately associated it with the role that someone plays in a play. They would have immediately pictured somebody who wears a mask in order to play a role, in order to convince somebody that I'm playing a role and I'm not actually me. In the Broadway hit Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda plays Alexander Hamilton. And he puts on makeup and, and hair and, and, and costume and all of these things so that when he walks onto the stage, you don't see Lin-Manuel Miranda, but you think of Alexander Hamilton. He's playing a role. In true terms, he is being a hypocrite. Now, in our culture, we take that and almost exclusively associate that with something that is negative. But in the Jews' day, it wasn't necessarily associated that way. It was a description of someone who participates in a play. And what, what shocks the people, what shocks the audience as, as thousands and, and, and scores of people have gathered around to hear Jesus speak, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees are also there. Jesus says, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet as the hypocrites do. The fact that he used the word hypocrite was not so much a shock. What was a shock was that Jesus was referring to their religious leaders as the hypocrites. 
by using this word, what Jesus is saying is that your religious leaders, the model, the example that you have had to follow, they are hypocrites. They are fake. They are playing a role. They are, they are twisting things up to make you think that they are something that they are not. And he's saying, don't be like them. Don't do that. When you do something good, don't, don't, don't sound the alarm bells. Don't, don't, don't put on the ticker tape parade. Don't do, don't do that. He says, if you do, you'll have your reward. You might get some, some applause from people. You might get some people go, oh my goodness. Look at Sean. He is so spiritual. I only wish I could be as spiritual as him. Meanwhile, all the people that live with him, they just know him as Sean. I love you, Sean. You're right here in front, second row. It's kind of what happens. So what the religious leaders would do, anytime they would begin to perform an act of mercy, they would oftentimes do it strategically and intentionally to make sure that there was a crowd which means that they would oftentimes bypass opportunities to perform acts of mercy if there was no crowd to get credit from. If nobody's looking, then why should I do it? I'm not gonna get any credit. Jesus contradicts this. And he says, Listen, let, me, let, me tell you how, let me tell you how you should handle this. Verse three, he says, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Jesus looks at the religious leaders, which all of the people in the audience would have recognized. And he says, you see what they do. I'm telling you to do the opposite. Now it's no wonder why the religious leaders wanted to, wanted to crucify him eventually. Jesus says, listen, don't put on the show. In fact, do it in secret. Now, a little point here. We have to understand that Jesus is not literally saying, if anybody notices you doing something good, you done messed it up. That's not what he's saying. After all, we remember Chris taught a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter five that we are to let our light so shine before men that they could see our good works charitable deeds, and glorify our Father in heaven. So the point isn't that if you've done something that someone else notices, you done messed it up. That's not the point. The point is, don't try to contrive and manipulate things so that people can see something good that you do and assume that you're more spiritual than you are. But as you live, you should do charitable things. You should look for opportunities to serve people. And as you do, don't do it for the praise or the accolades of them. Do it for the praise and accolades of me. And as people see you doing that, then they'll go, man, why on earth would they do that when nobody's watching? And then when they ask you the question, you can say, I'll tell you why, because Jesus done changed my life and it's all I can do to love people like he loved me. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Here's the point. Here's the truth that Jesus is trying to get across, that Jesus isn't nearly as concerned about how you bless and serve others as much as he is about why you bless and serve others. Are you, are you being sacrificial? Are you being generous? Are you serving somebody? Are you helping somebody because you want somebody 
to see you in a certain light? Is it because you want God to see you in a certain light? Now, it's important that as followers of Jesus that, that we get this right because, because what he wants us to understand is that he wants us, Jesus wants us to approach the way that we live, that we don't do these things because we're trying to win the approval of praise of somebody, but that we would be willing to do it for no other reason than it puts a smile on God's face. That when no one else sees it, God does. When you're at work, and no one saw your work, the hours that you put in, God sees your work. Did you do it to the best of your ability? Did you model generosity and kindness and love to the, the, the waiting staff at the restaurant? Did you serve your neighbor? Maybe in a way that they don't even know that you serve them, but God sees. It's important that we understand that we're careful about this though because what Jesus is talking about is so critical because, because it's possible and a lot, of, a lot of places, a lot of people have taken this idea and misconstrued it into something that it's not supposed to be. Because if they follow the teaching of the religious leaders that say by your righteousness you win the approval of others and potentially even God, then you can carry that all the way out to mean that not only can you, can you earn favor and grace from God, but you can even earn your salvation from God based on your actions. If you carry the religious leader's teaching all the way out to the furthest end, that's what it leads to. And there's a lot of people and there's a lot of places that have taught that that's how salvation works. I don't have any animosity in particular against um, Catholic people, but this is one of the things that troubles me at times about Catholic doctrine. In the fifth century, Pope Leo the Great was quoted by saying this, by prayer, we seek to appease God. Yes. By fasting, we seek to extinguish the lust of the flesh. Absolutely. And by alms or by giving of money, by giving of things, we redeem our sins. No. So we have to be careful that as we, as we read the Bible, as we listen to pastors, as we listen to people talk to us, we have to be careful that we don't get caught up in this works-based righteousness because that's what Jesus is contradicting, that it's, it's from the inside out that you do these things, not trying to do these things on the outside, hoping they'll affect the internal state. Oh, by the way, this is also the reason, this teaching right here, the reason why our church will never have any buildings or seats or Bible covers or bowls or cups or spoons with people's names on them, right? So if you have a lot of money and you want to give money to the church, great. I ain't putting your name on nothing. If that means you take your money and go to another church, then God love you. My God owns a cat on a thousand hills and I'm fine to let his name be on it. Here's what Jesus does. You're gonna see a pattern begin to follow here. He goes into the second thing, Matthew five, uh, 6, verse five. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. There's that word again. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Here's what they would do. The, the religious leaders and some of the other people who wanted to be perceived as super spiritual, they would put on their Sunday best. Now you can go back in the Old Testament and read about some of the Sunday best for the priests. Um, it was elaborate, it was ornate, it was out there. 
And one of the things that was a part of the Sunday best, I'm gonna teach you something today. I'm gonna teach you a word that most of you don't know. The word is phylactery. No, I did not say factory. I said phylactery. Say that word with me, phylactery. Here's what a phylactery is. A phylactery is like a headband that somebody done put Jesus junk on. All right, it's like, a, it's like a sweatband with a little box on it and inside the box is uh, some papyrus where they would have verses of scripture written on it. Literally, you're walking around with a headband and a box and some Bible verses in it. Now, fanny packs are trying to come back, but I don't think phylacteries are ever gonna make it. And here's what they would do. They would go to the busiest street corner that they could find and their Sunday best and they would stand and they would and they would pull the scroll out in front of them like this and they would start reading. Dear thee thine father, oh praise thou art, glorify thy within thy thither, whither, tither and yon. Right, so they would, they, they would stand on these street corners and they would say these big elaborate prayers and Jesus is saying, listen, don't do that. Yeah, there might be some people, some crazy people that would walk by and go, oh, look at that. Oh, doesn't they look so cool? Look at that box on his forehead. It's awesome. I want one. I'm gonna pray like that. There's some people who might look at that and go, man, they're really special. Let me put this in 21st century terms. If you're in a group prayer session and you're chomping at the bit to pray because you can't wait to show people how much better you can pray. When prayer becomes a competition, you have fallen into what Jesus is talking about. And can I just tell you, this is something that I struggle with. In my early years in in high school and college, in my early years of ministry, man, I could pray like the best prayers. Like you ain't ever prayed a prayer better than I just prayed. And I would have people come up to me and go like, oh, Pastor, that was such a good prayer. I'm like, you're darn right it was. (laughs) I felt the wind of heaven. Someone next to me goes, I just got indigestion. That's what that was. (laughs) Listen, this is a struggle for me. I can be honest with you, prayer is a struggle for me. For whatever reason, it's easier for me to pray out loud in a group of people than it is for me to pray by myself. I don't know why that is. It used to be a pride and ego thing. It used to be a competition thing. It's not that anymore. But anytime I pray and, I mean, listen, when you're the pastor, any family gathering you go to, Jaron, would you pray for the meal? Would you bless it? I would be happy to do that again. Literally anyone can do this. Here's what I started doing, by the way. If my kids are with me, I'll go, hey, Kid, I'll just name one of them. Gunner, pray for this. Gunner, pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for our food, for our food. Many, many blessings, many, many blessings. Amen. Can I just tell you what's convicting to me? I believe that God is more pleased by that than anything that I pray. Jesus said, don't be like that. Instead, do this. Verse six, but when you pray, go into your room. When you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place 
And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You know what God is saying here? God is saying that that big, long prayers using fancy sounding words in front of lots of people, that doesn't impress him. What impresses him are the things that you say when no one else hears it. We need to be reminded what the purpose of prayer is, that the purpose of prayer is not for applause and it doesn't need to be formal. The purpose of prayer is to cultivate a better relationship with Jesus and he wants to talk to you and wants to hear from you about the real things that are really on your heart. That's what prayer is. At the end of the day, what Jesus is trying to get across is that prayer is just, it's just talking to Jesus. I talk to people sometimes and and prayer is this um, kind of mystical thing. It kind of carries with it this weird stigma. And And I get it, you know, if you're praying out loud and someone walks in, Hey, who are you talking to? Oh, uh, I was talking, um, I was talking to somebody, and his name is Jesus. Now, people are familiar with church and that kind of stuff. They'll kind of be okay, but man, you start talking to somebody who doesn't know anything about Jesus or church or prayer, they're going to walk out of that room and go, we got to call somebody. They got, they got issues, schizophrenia, bipolar. I don't know what it is, but they talking to imaginary people up in there and freaking me out. And here's the deal. It, I get that it can be kind of weird and, and, and difficult to wrap your head around, but can I just tell you, I, I just think that that's the work of the devil that desperately doesn't want you to have a relationship with Jesus. He wants to convince you that it's weird or it's awkward or strange. But when we really understand what prayer is and we begin to really begin to understand and unpack the incredible benefit and the blessing that it is because ultimately prayer provides us instant access to God's office. No scheduling, no appointments, no secretaries you've ever had to schedule a doctor's appointment, you know how frustrating that can be. Prayer is God's open door policy. All you have to do is show up and speak. And the king of creation always shows up and he always pauses to hear what you have to say. That's what prayer is. Jesus said, listen, the hypocrites got it twisted. They thought it was about impressing y'all. But I'm here to tell you that, that prayer has nothing to do with about impressing anybody, but connecting with God. And when you're willing to get past the pride and the ego of, of trying to look and sound and feel important, and you can just get down in humility and say, God, I'm struggling with and fill in the blank. That's what impresses him. Now, Jesus gives a little bit of structure here. What's unfortunate about how what Jesus is getting ready to teach is it's been misconstrued uh, and, and, and misconveyed in a lot of different ways. It's been taught that this is something that you're supposed to memorize and just repeat it over and over and over again mindlessly. 
But that's not what Jesus has in view here. Notice what he says in verse seven. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathens do, all right? So, so don't, just, don't just say something over and over and over again. It's not saying that you can't pray uh, with persistence because, because that's not it. Remember, Jesus prayed when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times the same thing. Lord, if, it, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. So he's not saying that you can't pray repeatedly, but he's saying don't, don't pray with vain repetition, meaning, meaning don't, just, don't just recite something that means nothing to you. He's saying engage your heart into the conversation. He's saying, uh, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for the, your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask. Again, it's not saying that you can't pray for the things that you have need of, but, but prayer isn't just so that you can jump in and, and dump your wish list like it's an Amazon shopping cart on Jesus. When I was a kid, my prayer list started somewhere around February 1st. I, I gave God about a month after Christmas. And then starting in February, I would start praying for my Christmas list. Can I tell you what? If I'm not careful, I can do at 35 what I used to do at 14. And I can approach God from the vantage point of just giving him my wish list. And so what Jesus does here is not so that we just memorize it and repeat it over and over and over again, but he provides a little bit of structure. And here's what you're gonna see about the structure. The first part of it is all about God's glory, basically saying, God, you're great. And the second half of it is gonna be about our needs, basically saying, God, I need you. All right, so as we work through this, I wanna see if you, if you can see how Jesus models this. So here we go, verse nine. It says, in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This word hallowed means holy, set apart, altogether different. He's saying, God, your name is 100% different than any other name that has ever been spoken or heard. Your name is great. Your kingdom come. God, my focus is not about me. It's not about my wants. It's about recognizing that I play a role. I have a story. I have a part in the unfolding story of your kingdom. And my aim and my goal and my focus at times is about some of the things that affect me. But I'm going to reset and I'm going to recalibrate. And I'm going to say out loud as a reminder to me, not that you need to be reminded, but I need to be reminded, God, your kingdom come, not mine. And your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, if I was to do it, if I was God for a day and control it, God, I would do like this. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you're praying for God to do something and then you say something like, and God, it would be great if you just... What is Jesus doing here? He's saying, listen, you gotta understand that when you come to God in prayer, it is good for your soul to be reminded that it's not about you. It's about God's glory. It's about saying, God, you're great. In the second half, he pivots and shifts to our needs. He says, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. God, provide for my physical needs. Take care of what I need. You already know what I need before I even ask it. So God, I'm asking, would you provide for my daily needs and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors? God, would you, would you forgive me of the wrong things that I've done? I, I, God, I need to be forgiven of my sin. I need to be forgiven of what I did yesterday. Would you forgive me of that? And not only that, would you help me to forgive others for the things that that they do against me. God, I need your grace and strength to be able to do that. And then he says, 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He's saying, God, would you lead me? My ways are prone to things that are dark and evil and sinful. The things that I want to do are oftentimes the things that are not good for me. My mind and my flesh and my desire wants to go to this place to look at these things, to participate in in that event, to engage with those people, to to enjoy those things. And God, that's what my flesh wants. But my mind, God, it's not about my kingdom and my desires and my wants. It's about your kingdom and your desires and your wants. So God, would would you lead me not into temptation because everything inside of me wants to go this way, but I know that you want me to go that way. Why? so that you can deliver me from the evil one. God, I know who's calling the shots over there. And I don't want to walk anymore in his camp because his way leads to death and your way leads to life. God, you're good. God, I need you. And he closes and he says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Just a reminder, God, I'm just gonna kind of sandwich this just as a reminder to myself, not necessarily to you, God, because you already know it, but it's about your kingdom. It's about your name. It's about your glory because your name and your kingdom and your glory and your power will go on forever long after I'm gone. This is what prayer is. Jesus said, listen, don't, don't get caught up in the big, fancy, elaborate sounding prayers and words and fancy theological stuff. You might impress some people, but that's the only reward you're gonna get. If you wanna impress God, go pray somewhere where nobody hears but him. Then he adds verses 14 and 15, something that sometimes gets misunderstood. He says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. These verses have been taught at times to mean that if you don't forgive people, you go into hell. It's not what Jesus is saying here. We cannot earn our salvation or entrance into heaven. We can only receive the gift of God's grace through Jesus, his death on the cross to pay for our sins and the empty grave to make us new. What he's talking about here is specifically in light of the sins that are unforgiven that create issues between us and our relationship with God. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you are a follower of Jesus and if you have been living in a pattern of sin or if you have sin things in your life that you've not come back to God and say, God, forgive me, that was wrong. Would you forgive me for what I did? I know Jesus paid for my salvation, but I need your forgiveness to be appropriated in a new way for that new thing that I did. If you don't do that, then it can create issues. It can clog the conversation uh, tunnels between you and God. And so what, God, what Jesus is saying here is, listen, you, 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 need to, you need to make sure that you are forgiving other people. Because when you begin to demonstrate that you're unwilling to forgive other people, then God's gonna say, listen, how does that feel? Do you like how this relationship between me and you becomes dysfunctional? You see, that's the same thing that's happened because you're holding on to unforgiveness to someone else and making that relationship dysfunctional. So that's what Jesus is teaching here. And now Jesus begins to pivot and he addresses the last thing. Verse 16, he says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance for they disfigure their faces as they may appear to men to be fasting. And surely I say to you, they have their reward. 
But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Basically saying, take a shower, right? The hypocrites, the religious leaders, they would fast and they wouldn't take showers and they would walk around. I'm so weak. Why are you so weak, Pastor Jay? So weak because I'm fasting, because I'm so spiritual. You should be like me. That's fine, but why do you stink? I'm fasting from showers too. Jesus saying, no. When you fast, cleanse yourself. Just because you are fasting for Jesus doesn't mean you got to stank around everybody else. He says, why, verse 18, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, fasting, honestly, is something that doesn't really get talked a lot about in churches, especially Baptist churches. Um, you know, because Baptists can't do anything without some good food. And we can pray. And Baptists can almost become charismatic trying to anoint some fried chicken with oil. <laughs> Lord Jesus, change the molecular structure and bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. And I think God says, there's some things even I won't do. Fasting is kind of a strange thing. Um, We're familiar, much more familiar with the health benefits of fasting and what it does for your intestines and your gut. But we're oftentimes, we're not really aware of what it does for our our spirit. Um, And so, so I want to talk about what fasting is because ultimately what God is saying is, is that you can fast and that's a good thing. He's saying all of these things, doing charitable deeds, praying, fasting, these are all good things that should be, hear me clearly, should be a part of your rhythm as a follower of Jesus. But don't put it on public display. Don't fast and go out to lunch and be like, oh no, I'll just have a water. You all right? Oh, I'm I'm fasting. Y'all eat, it's okay. That looks really good. It it? Did you want some? No, I'm fasting. Don't be weird. I love the way that Dr. Tony Evans explains what fasting is. To fast is to temporarily give up a bodily craving, typically food, because of a spiritual need. Fasting is... Um, It's something that that comes with it, some incredible spiritual benefits because your soul doesn't have feelings, doesn't have senses the way that your body does. And so what fasting does is it allows your body to feel physically and that physical feeling serves as a spiritual reminder, like a catapult. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm working through a spiritual thing because because it it causes you to be interrupted from your day-to-day grind. Fasting allows your body to alert your soul of a need that you know that you have and it creates a dependency, a reminder to go to God in prayer and to pray for, to pray over, to pray about this particular issue. When are some good times to fast? Well, I'll tell you some times where I've done it in my life. If I've had a sin issue that I've had a hard time overcoming, I will fast over that. 
I'll give something up. And every time my body craves that thing, it's a reminder, God, would you help me overcome this area of sin? God, I need you. I cannot overcome this on my own. I've done everything that I can. I've done all the things in the self-will and the self-determination. I've gripped my teeth and I'm gonna do it, but I can't do it on my own. So God, I have committed to a season of fasting from this thing, whatever it is. And so that every time I crave or desire that thing, it reminds me, God, I desperately need you to overcome this area of sin in my life. Can I tell you that there are some men in this church that are listening to me that have been struggling with some secret sin issues. There are some women in this church that have been struggling with some secret sin issues and you've done accountability and you've talked to your girlfriends or your boys about it or you've, you've held it internally and you've journaled about it and you've memorized verses and you've done all these things but you sin and you sin and you sin and you sin and perhaps what God would have you here today is what you need to do is to commit to a season of fasting so that you can be reminded there are some things that you cannot do in your own strength and your own power and can only be done by the spirit of God working and strengthening your soul to set you free from an area of bondage that the devil from hell is having a death grip on so that you never experience the freedom that Jesus died for you to have. Another area that leads me to fasting is when, I'm, when I have a big issue or a big decision that I'm, that I'm working through. Um, whether it's an issue with our family or an issue with the church. God, I don't know what to do. And I'm not gonna spend much time here because that's a really complicated, I'll do a whole series on that about discerning God's will. But sometimes, especially when we're in a situation where we are faced with multiple good options, what we need to do is we need to fast and say, God, I wanna know. I'm not going to re-engage in this thing until I have heard from you about where you want me to go. And the third time that I'll fast is if there's seasons, can I just tell you as your pastor, there's times where I feel distant from God. You may not wanna hear that. Maybe you hope to come today. If, you, if you're one of the new folks that have joined us this summer and you've hoped to come to a church with a pastor who's always so tight with God and close with Jesus and, and he never sins and he never messes up and oh my goodness, he is so holy. Listen, I can give you the name of another church because this ain't it. I am messed up, jacked up and need Jesus just as much as anybody. And if you ask my wife or my kids, they'll tell you I need him more than most people. So when I feel distant from God, sometimes I'll fast. And say, God, I just, I just want to be in your presence again. This is what fasting is for. The underlying message in all of this that Jesus wants us to understand is that the moment that we think that our external righteous acts is what impresses God, or if we do external righteous acts in order to win God's approval, or we do these external righteous things to win the approval of others, then we have become hypocrites. Hypocrisy is not just saying one thing and doing another. At its root, at its origin, hypocrisy is playing a role that is not your true self 
for the purpose of winning favor with other people. And according to his kingdom manifesto, God rejects this type of arrogance and pride. And he says, my kingdom is upside down. You don't have to work to try to win or earn or gain my approval. And why do you care about anyone else's approval? Stop doing those things outwardly to impress people. And instead, why don't you focus on those secret things that almost nobody sees? A couple of weeks ago, um, Jessica and I were invited to spend some time with a sweet lady in our church who had been coming to our church for a while. And um, she had some, some things in her story that she wanted to share with us. And, uh, and so we accepted the invite. Initially, it was going to be us, and we were going to try to get a babysitter. And uh, any parents with kids knows that struggle. And uh, anyway, we let her know, hey, you know, is it okay if our kids come? And she was super gracious, like, ah, sure, absolutely. And so we showed up to our house and, um, you know, she showed us around and uh, she's got all these cool things in her house. She's telling us all these stories and my kids are just mesmerized. I mean, there's like, you know, animals mounted, you know, birds and ducks and deer and a bear and I mean, all these things. I mean, it's like you walked into, uh, you know, Bass Pro Shop. It was awesome. And, uh, and so we were there and, and uh, you know, kind of hearing her story and she was telling us some things and we had lunch and our kids sat down, we had, had lunch together and we were there probably two, two and a half hours. And, uh, and then we left and we got in the truck and, and Jessica turned around to the kids. She says, hey guys, I want you to know I'm so proud of you. See, one of the things that we try to do with our kids is we try to talk to them about instill some values in them that we think are important, like um, minding your manners and um, honoring your elders, things like saying, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Might be a little old-fashioned, but that's just how we roll. And uh, we talk to them about things like, you know, look with your eyes, not with your hands. If it's not yours, don't touch it. All of these things, kind of somewhat basic. And uh, we were just really, really proud of our kids. They did a really good job. And so Jessica turns around, we're leaving. And, and she says, hey guys, I just want you to know, I'm really proud of you. Because I know that that wasn't easy. Listen, I remember being a kid and going over when my parents would go over to someone else's house. If there were no other kids, it was like purgatory. It was awful. All these cool things that I can't touch. And it's like, now y'all get out of here. Y'all go have fun, but don't touch nothing. Like terrible for a kid, but we were just really proud of our kids. And Jessica does such a good job of affirming our kids. I, listen, words of affirmation is like lowest of the love languages for me. And so I'm like, oh, dang it. I totally should have done that. I should have been a dad. I should have led. I should have gone first, but I got my, my, my helpmate, Jess, my bride. Um, and so she's, man, I'm so proud of you. You did this, this, and this, and, and all of these things. And and I echo and I go, yeah, guys, super proud of you. You guys did a great job. I know that was hard. Um, not the easiest, maybe even not even the funnest thing for you to do on a Friday afternoon. Um, but, but we're really, really proud of you. My oldest, Micah, she's nine. Ever the opportunist. She is my child. Not two seconds goes by. And she says, well, what do we get? That's the paradox of parenting, right? Like you try to, what gets celebrated gets replicated. So you try to celebrate and reward certain things, but you don't want to create a, a, an entitlement mentality. And so there's always that tension in our house. 
And I adjusted the mirror and I looked at Mike and I said, you know what, baby, you get nothing. Because sometimes it's good to do something just because you know it makes your mommy and daddy proud. Sometimes it's good to do the right thing when no one's watching for no other reason that you know that's what your mommy and daddy would want for you. Can I tell you, that's the message of what Jesus is teaching here. Don't go do all of these things to win people's favor or approval or God's favor or approval. Go do them in secret. And don't be motivated to go do things in secret because Jesus said that, that your father who sees in secret will reward openly. If you're trying to go into it to get the reward, your motivation is wrong and that's not the point. The point is, as followers of Jesus, God wants us to understand that the things that we do should be motivated in response to what God has already done. That he gave up his son so that the full cup of his wrath did not have to be poured out upon you because Jesus drank it all on the cross. And our response, the things that we do as followers of Jesus, these external righteous acts, are not so that we can be rewarded or praised. It's because we know it puts a smile on our heavenly Father's face. Believe today there's two things that God would have you leave here to consider and to contemplate and think about as you leave this place. And the first is this. Can we just be honest? We're all hypocrites at some level. But we all fall into one of two categories of hypocrites. We are either hypocrites in hiding. And a hypocrite in hiding is someone who is constantly at work to convince people that you are more than you are. Or you're a hypocrite in process, which means that you are constantly seeking Jesus because that you know that you are less than you seem. That when the lights are gone and no one's around and it's just you looking in the mirror, you know the things that are deep within your soul that you're too ashamed and embarrassed to tell anybody. And the question that Jesus would have us ask ourselves today is this. What type of hypocrite are you? Those who are hypocrites in hiding, you might win the appraise of others. But it's the ones who are the hypocrites in process that are willing to be honest and deal with it, that God responds to. Here's the second thing that I think that God would have us contemplate. Big, flashy things are seen by others and are often rewarded by them, but they're not rewarded by God. No, the things that are rewarded by God are the small, insignificant things that oftentimes go unnoticed and unseen by others but they are seen 
and they are rewarded by your God. So the question is, whose affirmation and reward matters the most to you? How you answer this question will shape the way that you live your life this week. And if your answer is that God's affirmation and reward matters the most to me, then perhaps the the last question that Jesus would have for you today is this. What is the small, unseen, unappreciated thing that he has called you to care about today? Because your God who sees in secret, rewards openly. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.